Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Today we have two segments to the show. First, I'm going to catch up with one reporter who has read every single one of the documents leaked by Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. And then I'm going to speak with three lawyers, including one former Massachusetts Attorney General, that were involved in the legal actions that led to the Big Tobacco Master Settlement, the largest settlement of civil litigation claims in American history, about whether that effort to hold an industry to account might provide a roadmap for addressing the harms of tech firms. First up, Shoshana Wodinsky, a staff reporter at Gizmodo covering consumer privacy and tech policy. Shoshana is part of a trio at the site that pledged in November to make the entire trove of Facebook papers available to the public. The documents were brought forward by whistleblower Francis Haugen and provided first to the Wall Street Journal and then to other outlets, resulting in a fusillade of coverage throughout the fall of last year, including in Gizmodo. In announcing their intent to make as many of the documents public as possible, as quickly as possible, Shoshana joined Gizmodo's Dell Cameron and Andrew Coots in a post explaining they were working with other experts to establish guidelines for the release, including how to address privacy issues and avoid making anything worse for affected people by revealing information unnecessarily. These experts included Daniel Con gilmore a senior staff technologist at the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, Priy Bengani, senior research fellow at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, Damon McCoy and Laura Edelson, computer scientists at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, where I teach, and Ethan Zuckerman, an associate professor at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Now the team is on the verge of following through on its promise, and I caught up with Shoshana about the experience of peering into these thousands of documents and what she's learned about the company and about the potential to reform it. My name is Shoshana Wodinski. I'm a tech reporter at Gizmodo, and I focus typically on data privacy stuff, but as of late, I've been mostly covering Facebook. So Shoshana, uh, tell me about this project that you've been engaged in to make the Facebook papers available more widely to the public. Real funny thing happened late last year where this whistleblower who was inside the company basically released a bunch of documents first to the Wall Street Journal Maybe you heard about that before releasing them more broadly to a select group of journalists and then more widely to, I think it's like about like 300 journalists at this point. Gizmodo has a reputation of being kind of like an underdog publication. We always like to punch up. So we thought, hey, what is the best way, like what better way to punch up against both Facebook and the kind of artifice of tech journalism as a whole (laughs) than to get this stuff out there. So uh, what we quickly realized is that one of the reasons that folks weren't releasing stuff, aside from the kind of like uh, legal minutia and just the technical difficulties, is that there's a lot of freaking documents to go through, like kind of a lot. At this point, there's about like, I'm, I'm just kind of like circling through like the last few dozen right now. There's about 1,200. There are about, like, I don't know, on average, about 30 pages each. So that's like 30-something thousand pages of documents from inside the company. That's just 
it's not only a lot of content, but a lot of it's really hard to get through. So for the past three months or so, what I've been doing is because uh, the whistleblower, the team that Francis Hogan, that's her name, but the team that she was working with basically dumped every single one of these documents into basically like a bunch of like unlabeled folders. So I've literally just been going through each of them and creating what's essentially a library and being like, okay, here are some rough topics. Here are some like very kind of broad categories these papers can fall into. And it started with five, then 10. Now I'm like at 50 something. We're Because we're such a small newsroom, there's only three of us working on uh, this project. We have other collaborators at NYU and a few other schools. Uh, but for the most part, I've just been categorizing and sort sifting through all these documents up until this point because we're planning on releasing them very soon. So what I've been doing is I've just been kind of in my head going through the bowels of this company for three months straight. And I've just been, I went from... <laughs> questioning what the company was doing to questioning what I was doing to questioning the project. And now that I'm at the kind of the other side of it, uh, feels good. So I want to get on to some of the things that you've learned from that journey and some of the insights that you might have about, you know, what has been reported, but also perhaps what hasn't. But just a couple of more process questions. One of the, uh, I suppose, critiques of the release of the Facebook papers to the consortium of journalists, uh, <laughs> as it were, in October, <laughs> was that it didn't necessarily allow for uh, much international scrutiny uh, and certainly uh, didn't appear to involve news organizations from you know, non-English uh, publications or uh, countries. How are you addressing that in this project? Will this uh, project you know, make, make these papers available in a way that you know, hopefully will democratize that scrutiny? When we first got access to the papers late last year, I don't remember when it was October, November, whatever, uh, we started actually releasing uh, some of the documents ourselves on our site. And again, that was this kind of piecemeal, we were kind of picking apart documents as we saw fit, writing blogs, getting them out there. And what we realized was that, okay, this is too big a project that we can just let some outlets get their hands on some of these documents. Because as we were doing that, as we were giving outside journalists access, and as we were kind of publishing documents here and there ourselves, it was just, it was too many. The team that we were getting the documents from were just like dropping like 70 something documents a day. It was literally like a deluge of content. And you might think like, oh, that's exciting. Why don't you just like, I don't know, just like write something quick and just do, you know, just get it out there. Uh, journalism doesn't work like that. <laughs> you need to get context. You need to kind of like fit every document together in sort of a cohesive picture. And because these are oftentimes, I mean, these were 70 documents, 50, between 50 and 70 documents a piece, but they were oftentimes like kind of unrelated. And sometimes they would just be like random pages here and there. All of those issues together kind of merged into us saying like, okay, yeah, we should probably uh, do some sort of big public release thing. And around that time, we were also working with academics from NYU. Not me personally, this was Del Cameron, one of the other reporters on this project. And around this time they were like, hey, uh, we'd love to help you out with that. And we were thinking of doing, doing something similar ourselves. 
smash cut to about uh, we had a few calls kind of like arrange how these how everything would be organized and like what kind of yada 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 system we would use uh smash cut to several months later and here we are i've got pretty much everything categorized and ready to go and we should be releasing things uh soon when we started releasing documents in like a live blog way way back when uh some folks tried to ocr they tried to kind of like get the documents in sort of like a machine readable format to make things easier to read because these documents are literally just pictures taken on an iPhone of a computer screen. So oftentimes they're blurry or whatever. Something that I'm, I really want to do is that once we get everything released and hopefully OCR'd, I really want to get them translated into different languages because all of these documents are written in English, <laughs> even the ones that are about Indonesia or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, they're all written in English and folks don't necessarily speak English as a first language there. So hopefully, uh, I mean, that's down the road once everything's out, baby steps. But that's something that I personally want to get ahead of. But what I can tell you right now is that election stuff is, is, is going to be one of the first things we release. Personally, I have other stuff that I want to see publicized first. Like there, there's a lot of really interesting stuff with regards to how to research AI and algorithms ethically. There's a lot of stuff on ethics and equity in there, uh, like how to design products for how, how, like how do you create a racially equitable algorithm? I could see that being very interesting. In fact, you know, the, most of the reporting so far about the papers has been about the results of the research that Facebook has done, um, less yeah. perhaps on some of those principles or, or methods. I feel like, yeah, I've definitely noticed that too. Um, and I feel like it's because folks are more interested in impact rather than intent. And like, yeah, I totally get that. Like you can have the best intentions as these papers show Facebook's researchers often do, but if the company torpedoes those immediately, then what good are your intentions? I'm interested in that stuff because of like what other researchers will be able to kind of pull from that and like how folks can like see where Facebook failed and where they could do things and where other companies could like move that research forward in the future. Something I've been saying throughout this project is that uh, a company this big <laughs> should like a, a company this big should be able like should be able to allocate its resources better. A lot of times, uh, particularly when it comes to things like election safety or civic integrity or whatever, what have you, but fairness, uh, the company doesn't allocate too many resources there. They're much more interested in things like growth or monetization or new products. And they allocate more kind of staffers there and mostly uh, just kind of focus on like researching things like fairness and equity without really putting any muscle behind it. So you have all these papers that will be like, hey, look at these great ideas for algorithms. Look at what we could do. And then like, you'll see documents from like two years later where they're just like, yeah, we never ended up doing that. Part of the reason that this project has had me kind of like questioning my own role in the tech reporting zeitgeist is because I'm seeing so much 
I'm seeing like, like so many projects that kind of get off the ground, but then never kind of come to fruition and so many like half projects that end up kind of rolling out. And it's, and I'm just like, what, why am I writing about this company? It's like an exercise in futility, but then you see the outsized impact that it has both on our country and in others. And you're just like, how could a company that's barely holding it together and that has these many kind of like these unfinished projects and like algorithms that it's not even really paying attention to after rolling them out, how can a company this like hamstrung, like how? And like throughout all of this, I just find myself asking how more and more. And uh, yeah, eventually what I realized one of, one, of, one of the many things that I realized about this company late into my own work was you have a lot of cases where the right hand doesn't talk to the left hand and you have a lot of projects that get too big for any one researcher to kind of have a handle on. And when that happens, you get reporting on the company that might be kind of true, but not really. Uh, you saw this a lot with the integrity team when it first kind of dissolved. And I was talking to folks uh, inside the company that have worked on that team, and they're just like, why is the reporting so kind of garbage? Like, I can tell you that like, these points aren't true or, that, or those points aren't true. And now kind of reading over the work that that team uh, had done, I'm just like, well, of course reporters aren't going to know what aren't going to know what's true and what's not because there's too many hands in that pot and it's just it's too scattered if that makes sense absolutely um well i do want to i want to just uh, quickly and 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 clearly we can't be uh comprehensive here but um <laughs> in, in addition to some of the um i guess methods and principles and and uh, kind of maybe uh, more uh, background material that you've reviewed yeah. that you that you think that there may be a larger story in on some level. Um, are there other things that you feel have gone unnoticed or uh, under remarked upon, you know, in the months since these papers started to emerge? Yes. In particular, uh, Facebook's work uh, overseas and outside of the US, there's stuff when it comes to like um, internet connectivity in particular Folks really haven't been talking about that, but the fact that in many kind of impoverished regions, Facebook is, again, subsuming people's access to the internet. It's kind of a worrying concept, and I don't know why more people aren't kind of freaking out about it, because, um, you know, internet connectivity as a whole is very good. But when Facebook controls people's access to the internet, that as an idea is not so good. So you have kind of these weird conversations where people are just like, is this morally just or not? And I feel like as these papers start to emerge, whenever we get around to covering topics like that, I feel like a lot more of those conversations are going to be held because you have Facebook clearly, like these researchers are clearly trying to do the right thing. But when it comes to practice, it becomes very, very wrong. And that usually happens, uh, again, overseas in regions where you're not going to get as much airtime as something that's happening on U.S. soil. Perhaps making these documents available in this way to the international community and then perhaps helping them to contextualize or even access the documents possibly in language, um, that could really lead to some really interesting observations. Um, 
a theme that kind of emerges when you talk about things like extremism or political anything with regards to these documents is that Facebook bad, but people worse is kind of a theme that I'm seeing emerge more and more where Facebook clearly will roll out products without taking into account how terrible people are. You saw that um, pretty early on. I wrote about Facebook's attempts to contain footage of the New Zealand Christchurch shooting uh, where the company, I like, I spoke to people that work in, that worked inside the company where they were just like, of course that footage was going to run rampant on our platform because we didn't know how to algorithmically detect footage from mass shooters because we didn't expect anyone would use our platform to upload that stuff. And you see that same mistake kind of repeat again and again, where you have people using Facebook for horrible, horrible political violence. And Facebook's just like, we didn't know. And after a while, you would think as an engineer, you would stop expecting the best from people and start realizing that people are garbage and they're going to use their, their platform for garbage uses. That doesn't yeah, really <laughs> doesn't really come off well though in, in marketing materials, it seems like. <laughs> I, I I think, yeah, I think I think it's just like you could say that Facebook's like biggest flaw is being too optimistic, which like makes them sound better than they are, but it's it's kind of true. They kind of assume like, oh, everything's great, so we don't need to create products for the worst case scenarios, even though these researchers are coming up with like new frameworks and new algos designed for those worst case scenarios and instead you have people in these kind of like upper echelons of the company saying like no that's never going to happen we don't need to roll that out does that ultimately come back to mark zuckerberg i mean i i, I feel like the, the oh, thing yeah. that i uh level out on on this is that he started it as a naive person in a very different time you think about the politics of you know the the mid-aughts versus now and he has refused to update his thinking in many, many ways. Um, and so the company cannot, in some ways, update its thinking because he's in control of the, the reins, oh. right? And, and, and oh, yeah. without any accountability in, in that regard. So I don't know. I mean, it feels like to me, unless, unless there's a change at the top, you, know, you don't see any change right. happening. Right. No, no, no. I totally agree. Like he's the one kind of steering the ship and over and over you just see him just being like, how could this happen when the exact same thing has been happening for the past four years? And you have to wonder, it's just like, is is he like, he's clearly a smart guy. He made this company. So you have to wonder, is it kind of deliberate naivety? Is it his stockholders? It seems like a kind of unwillingness to admit that the thing he made could do harm. Yeah. Um, and that, and that, that, that it seemed bound up in his identity to some extent. He's, he's yeah. unwilling to admit that. And you don't only see it with him. You see it, uh, especially in some of the documents from folks like, uh, like Bosworth, who I think is now not CMO. Chief technology uh, officer. <laughs> sorry, the chief technology officer. Chief, good Lord. Um, yeah. You see it from him in particular, where he, has this sentiment over and over that he's just like, our products are, aren't doing anything bad per se. They're just amplifying the kind of badness that's already inherent in society. And we shouldn't take the blame for that. Well, when at the same time, it's just like, shouldn't you though? Like clearly 
something something I think that uh, you see in conversations that we'll hopefully be publicizing relatively soon, conversations between him and Zuckerberg and folks on the integrity team, is that products that give people internet access or connect people to their family or give people a digital lifeline that they might not have had, all of that is a net good. But these same tools have the kind of potential for extreme harm. Like people will actually die overseas because of products that Facebook has rolled out. So you have to wonder, and I've gotten into like arguments with folks that have worked at the company uh, in the past where they're just like, well, isn't it worth it? You can't ask that question because you're essentially asking how much good is necessary to outweigh the societal violence that this company has wrought. Personally, when I signed up to be a tech reporter not that long ago, uh, I've only been doing this for about three years, uh, that is not a question that I signed up to answer <laughs> uh, personally. But I guess, you know, that's just that's just how things are now. Is there anything else you want to get across about, about this project or, uh, I don't know, any shout outs, anything of that nature? Uh, company too big. That's it. <laughs> that's 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 all. Uh, there is one person that I want to shout out. The biggest shout out that I want to give is uh, to Laura Edelson over at NYU. Her research on Facebook's political ads has kind of fallen afoul of the company before, and she's kind of always in their crosshairs, but she's also one of the main collaborators that we're working with on this. And she's been uh, a tremendous help to me personally, in kind of sorting through all of these documents and making them understandable, hopefully, hopefully to readers uh, once we start releasing things. There's a ton of there's a ton of other folks we're collaborating with also, and that list will be growing as we start to kind of tackle some of the headier subjects in these documents, like both the stuff overseas, but also things like human trafficking and uh, online extremism. So as we start to kind of delve into those topics more, we're going to be reaching out to folks outside of our company because none of us have expertise in those sorts of subjects uh, to, to help us kind of contextualize things and uh, make them understandable for readers. So stay tuned is all I can say. Well, it sounds like uh, this work stream that you fell into in October will now, it October. looks like, carry on. <laughs> carry on for many more months uh unfortunately oh. for you <laughs> i i'm i'm so, i'm sorry to make that gross noise but it's been so long <laughs> and you know i keep thinking that there's a light at the end of this tunnel and then that light just keeps getting farther away uh but you know that's kind of what we signed up for when we agreed to do this <laughs> well i wish you the absolute best of luck with it and i i think my podcast listeners are going to have to know the name of your uh your your feline companion because they're going to hear <laughs> that companion this is my roommate's cat saffron and she is uh locked inside my room right now <laughs> saffron's made uh, her or his uh first appearance her. on uh, uh her appearance on the first uh on, on her first <laughs> podcast so shoshana awesome. thank you so much for doing this Awesome. Thanks, Justin. Uh, happy to.
you are enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. first segment may have you thinking about what can be done to hold Facebook, now known as Meta, legally to account. Last year, a lawsuit filed by the Ohio Attorney General on behalf of the Ohio Public Employees Retirement System and other investors targeted the company's false claims about the safety of its platform and argued that it had, quote, knowingly exploited its most vulnerable users. Writing for Just Security, an online forum about national security, foreign policy, and human rights, where I am also an occasional contributor, Scott Harshberger and Dennis Aftergood argued that the Ohio suit might signal the start of something. They believe that the massive legal effort against Big Tobacco in the 1990s can serve as a blueprint for today's state attorneys general. At the time, Scott was the Massachusetts Attorney General who later signed the 1998 nationwide Big Tobacco Master Settlement on behalf of his state, and Dennis worked on the case in California. The historic settlement saw 46 states, private parties, and big tobacco companies reach the largest settlement of civil litigation claims in American history. Under that agreement and related settlements, the tobacco companies were bound to a variety of restrictions on their marketing practices, and they've paid the states more than $200 billion since. To learn more about the parallels they see to today's effort in Ohio and the possibility it might lead to action on a similar scale, I spoke with Scott and Dennis last month along with Thomas Green, who served as the first Assistant Attorney General of Massachusetts working with Scott on tobacco lawsuits from 1992 to 1998. Scott Harshbarger, I'm Senior Counsel at Kasner Edwards in Boston, former Attorney General of Massachusetts and President of the National Association of Attorneys General, among other things, and also now, the last couple of years, uh, the co-founder uh, and chair of Lawyers Defending American Democracy, uh, a group uh, formed to try to mobilize the legal profession to protect and defend the Constitution and rule of law against the assault that's pretty systematic on uh, uh, the forces of democracy and the rule of law. And that is how I met uh, Dennis. I'm Dennis Aftergut. I uh, am a former federal prosecutor, former uh, number two in the San Francisco City Attorney's Office, currently of counsel at the Rennie Public Law Group in San Francisco a co-founder of the Coalition to Preserve, Protect, and Defend in San Francisco, which is also a a group of rule of law lawyers. Hello, I'm Tom Green. I was the Chief Deputy Attorney General under Scott Harshbarger in the 1990s during the commencement and ultimately the settlement of the litigation against the tobacco industry, pursuant to which they have now paid over 250 $200 $200 billion, uh, and continue to owe payments to the states in perpetuity. So the reason that we're on the phone today really is a, a piece that uh, Scott and Dennis wrote for Just Security. Uh, it was titled Big Tobacco Type Lawsuits from State AGs, A Roadmap for Redressing Facebook's Harms. You know, in this piece, you, you kind of 
walk us back a bit uh, over the history of settlements made against big tobacco and the parallels and the possibilities that that may exist for reigning in big tech. Can you take us back to uh, the fight against big tobacco and the contours of that, kind of to set that history? Sure, Justin. It's Tom. Why don't I start on that? Um, So the litigation began in early 1990s. Uh, And Massachusetts, along with Mississippi, uh, Texas, Minnesota, and Florida were the first five states to bring individual state public interest litigation against the tobacco industry. And as the case developed, both documents came out um, that began to uh, further prove our allegations and the complaints, as well as whistleblowers um, who began to see an opportunity uh, to address uh, the unlawful behavior of the companies. And the core, just to boil it down, given the limited time, really are the three lies, as the state attorneys general called it, that were at the root of the industry's behavior. The first one being that nicotine is not addictive, a statement that the companies made. The second being, uh, going back decades, that the link between cigarette smoking, lung cancer, emphysema, and other deadly diseases was unproven. Thirdly, the statement by the industry that they did not market to kids, uh, which was would be illegal in all states, even back then. Throughout the case, we proved what mounted to, at the core of it, consumer fraud claims for unfair and deceptive acts and practices. That's the phrase in pretty much every state's consumer protection law. And that included material misstatements um, in marketing, and the targeting of kids and the documents you know, that came out, proving that that was a, an intentional strategy and not just something that was happening you know, at, a re, at the retail level. Um, we, we clearly also sued for money um, because Medicaid is the largest line item in, in every state's budget and the largest cost item in every Medicaid budget is due to tobacco-related disease and death. The cases were ultimately settled uh, in 1998, late 1998, in the, in the case of 46 states signing what's called the Master Settlement Agreement, four other states had individual settlements because their trial dates predated the conclusion of the negotiations over the larger settlement. Let me also just add on that, because Tom is exactly right, and, and not to belabor this, but the other piece that to me was important was it was a bipartisan state attorney general effort. That is, it was people did not identify as Republicans and Democrats. It was states taking on on behalf of consumers in their states, people who uh, were vulnerable uh, and victims, and seeing their role as attorneys general as being to protect the public interest and health and safety of each state. And that was the way that the case developed over time uh, it also was the second piece was much like we're, we arguably face today was that the industry did not take it particularly seriously. They had been successful for years in deflecting these things. I think they underestimated what it meant to have attorneys general representing the public interest taking this on. The battle we faced was that nobody has ever been successful here. And so when you started this in 1994, 1995, it was somewhat of a fool's errand. And the irony at the end, and I'll not prolong this, was that one fourth element was addressed by them was in the lawsuit was even if you won, 
it would be found to be unjust enrichment because we know that people die sooner because they have cancer from cigarette smoking rather than live longer. And so Medicaid and Medicare would have lesser costs. But uh, again, it was a collective effort that Tom and a team of attorneys general, Republicans and Democrats, uh, led that charge in dealing with tobacco. Uh, Justin, it's Dennis, and I'll add a little bit to uh, Scott's uh, point about bipartisanship, which is extremely important. In May of 2021, now I'm going to switch over to Facebook, 44 attorney generals wrote to Facebook encouraging them not to go forward with a plan to expand Instagram for children. The big tobacco case was a lot about children, protecting children. And we already have the beginnings of bipartisanship with respect to Facebook. One other point on that, in uh, November, the Ohio Attorney General, a Republican, sued Facebook for securities fraud, uh, very closely with allegations very closely related to those in the big tobacco case. One small last point, uh, slightly undercutting the point about bipartisanship. In California, the Republican attorney general refused to join early on. He joined later on when it was so successful, but he refused to join early on the tobacco lawsuit. And therefore, and this is my connection to big tobacco, San Francisco, where I was the chief assistant, joined the uh, lawsuit. I used to say San Francisco was the 10th state to sue big tobacco back in uh, the (laughs) 1990s. And uh, but as I say, the Republican attorney general, Dan Lundgren, did join the lawsuit later on to get his piece of the action. Just sticking with. The, the situation in the 90s and with big tobacco for a moment, one of the things that occurred to me to ask you all is the relationship between, uh, you know, the lawsuits, the actions by uh, the AGs and the science at the time, the medical science at the time. You know, I, I have to admit, I grew up in a, uh, a, a town that, that produced an enormous amount of tobacco. <laughs> and there were a large number of people that I was surrounded by who, uh, even in the mid '90s, did not believe that nicotine or or that uh, cigarettes were harmful to people's health. But of course, the the science had begun to to bear it out. How how important was the sort of state of the art with regard to the medical science around around nicotine and other carcinogens in cigarettes to the legal action? Yeah, that that's a great question, Justin. Because I think, like like you, um, in, in our youth which was before your youth in my case, you know, the, the thought was, okay, a cigarette is just tobacco leaf rolled up and then there's a filter on it. What was great about the attorney general effort, I think, and this was a, a point Scott really uh, forced uh, into my brain, uh, was that we needed to have partners and allies and we needed to understand the rest of the constituents that were focused on tobacco control. And that included the state public health departments, uh, it included the Tobacco Free Kids organization in Washington, D.C., and it included a number of scientists and uh, physicians. And the more we learned about cigarettes was that they were a highly engineered, very precisely engineered nicotine delivery device. It wasn't simply a tobacco leaf rolled up in paper and with a filter on it. And the, even the filters themselves uh, were shown by some of the, the evidence 
to have been designed to produce a certain result with the uh, filter testing machine at the federal government level that was different than the result in, in the smoker's mouth, uh, where there was much more in actually inhaled um, in, in a real life smoking of a cigarette as, as opposed to the machine calibration. So the science was very important. Um, again, the whistleblowers, and I gather from Dennis, we, you know, and from the public information, we're beginning to see that you know, on the Facebook side. Um, that was important as well, because many of the whistleblowers were themselves scientists who had, who had originally worked inside big tobacco. I think that really needs to be emphasized here, because my own view is that the beginning of the whistleblower effort may be the turning point uh, in this whole issue with Facebook, as long as it can be supported. And at least, well, it was different for North Carolina AG Mike Easley in terms of this effort, because that was a big industry, tobacco industry state, obviously, and some of the Republican uh, folks who wouldn't step in. The reality was in Massachusetts, for example, and many other states, the public policy had already begun to form um, in terms of support for changing, whether it was many businesses already beginning to support the idea of banning tobacco, of limiting tobacco use, of restricting access to kids. So that in some respects, this was a time where the litigation actually supported public policy rather than creating the environment. And that was very important because, as Tom says, we reached out and we had supporters from the hospital associations, uh, from American Cancer Society, uh, and any number of other folks who already were beginning to mobilize. And this strengthened their efforts. And that's what I you also uh, hope begins to occur here, that you begin to get other people realizing there is a collective community out here uh, that sees the harms, identifies it, uh, and supports it. I am sure that Big Tobacco fired major artillery in retaliation against the whistleblowers, probably both inside and out. Facebook has a lot of dissenting open discussion internally. It's going to be very interesting as Facebook hunkers down. There are all kinds of signs that instead of being open as they were, they're going to start hunkering down. What kind of retaliation may be uh, attempted against whistleblowers? I'm, I'm interested in the reason I was asking about the science is, uh, I, you know, it, it, feel, it felt to me like in looking at your article and then also what I know of the settlements with tobacco, that there was a, a kind of, you know, confluence of things that happened at once, you know, the public policy, uh, as you say, the, the the legal approach. But, you know, there was also sort of a basis in science that was well-established or in public health. Do you feel like we're at that same point with social media uh, or with Facebook in particular, are there any aspects of that combination of, of factors that are, are more or less developed? Well, let, me, let me just, on, on this broad general overview, I think the last few years, and because of the issues that we are raising about the impact of Facebook and others on things like the insurrection, mobilizing people, uh, misinformation, and that kind of uh, an issue, I think you're beginning to see that confluence of events. These are powerful industries and people are beginning, might well begin to ask the question, with great power comes great responsibility. And you're purporting to say you're taking care of this. They're acknowledging many of the harms uh, increasingly. 
and saying that they're going to take care of it. And that's one of the things that tobacco, what Thomas pointed out, tobacco said, well, any problems we're having, we're taking care of that. We, that is with filters and various ways. And the fact is that, that here you have substantial evidence now with the polariz radical polarization of the electorate, with the misinformation, with things like January 6th insurrection and others, many, many people are writing about the impact of social media on our democracy, uh, on our culture, uh, on, our, on all kinds of things that hold the kind of civility and decency and foundation that you need in arguably going back to the Tocqueville uh, for the core of a civilized democratic society. And that is very fragile and social media by the, the social scientists and others are beginning to produce that it, that's accounting for a great deal of the fragility and threats, not just the elected leaders and the voices and other things. That's my opinion. It is beginning to unravel that way. Now, whether it continues is another question, of course. And that's, this is where they have the opportunity, frankly, to Thomas's point and Dennis's, they could reform themselves. They could step up and at least show that they're fully aware of the impact they're having. They're trying to take steps to mitigate their legitimate and use the benefits of what social media provide as their calling card, not face the problems of impact they're having negatively. So you talk about three particular harms uh, in this piece. In, in particular, you talk about amplifying uh, political and social discord. You talk about a human trafficking, and then you talk about teen anxiety, depression, and suicide. We just now talked about a little bit about political discord. Do you see the AGs picking that one up? Is that something that could be included in a suit, or do you think of that as, as separate somehow? The Ohio Attorney General in his lawsuit lists that as one of the three, one of the three big uh, issues that uh, they are seeking to address. I'll let others talk about that more directly, but I think you do have a showcase with the January 6th insurrection. You have a lot of evidence mounting about that. You have the attempt, as many people felt in 2016, by foreign governments to interfere in this way. I think the sense that our core vehicles for democracy, the elections, the credibility of elections, legitimacy of elections being threatened by these kind of things uh, begins to raise that question. And I think it, it's also the attorney general is responsible for the public health of our communities in their states. And this polarization is radically affecting that. Well, I think if you're talking about the tobacco analogy here, um, as Dennis mentioned, that really was all about kids. Um, because very few, if any, people, the data showed back in the 90s, start to smoke after what was then the legal age of 18 uh, for them to be sold a cigarette. So it was important for an industry that sells a product that, when used as intended, uh, kills a, a fair number of its consumers to have, as some of the documents said, replacements. Um, and so it was very important for the companies if they wanted to have lifetime uh, smokers and we even did a, you know, what is the profit of the industry of a lifetime smoker who starts in their teenage years? Um, we did a model on that for the litigation. And so we were able to focus on the harm to kids. Now here, what exactly is that? Um, you know, as, as, you, as you asked, I think what, what's been identified certainly by Scott and Dennis is uh, the amplification of uh, a particular 
uh, click, if you will, uh, if, if someone's suicidal or depressed or, or otherwise, and I'm not exactly Mr. High Tech, but as I understand from what I've read, you know, there is an amplification that goes on and Dennis, you can pick up here, but in terms of what then goes to that user of the, of the, uh, of the application uh, in terms of uh, follow on, you know, uh, clicks and, and, and touch points. On that point, and then I'll move, I'll move uh, back to political discord. The whistleblower Francis Haugen says directly and has documents showing how the Facebook algorithm drives kids uh, particularly on Instagram, toward increasingly intense emotional contact uh, content involving suicide, and the father who wrote in the Times uh, in a Times op-ed about his daughter's suicide said exactly the same thing about how Instagram was such a part of what uh, caused her uh, distress. On your original point about political discord, we just, as Scott said, have increasing evidence and studies and work from our active press. Mother Jones in October did a piece about Facebook being the primary means by which Oath Keepers met each other. Oath Keepers, at least four, I think three or four of them have been indicted as part of the insurrection, part of the, one of the militant groups that led the riot at the Capitol. Facebook did its own study, I think in 2019, where they created a profile of a North Carolina woman who said she liked Fox News and said she liked Donald Trump. She did not say that she was interested in conspiracy theory. Within two days, the internal research that has now been disclosed says that she was driven to a QAnon conspiracy theory site. QAnon members were major participants in the insurrection. So what you have here is a business policy to increase profits that is contrary to public policy. In California, at least, and in other states like Massachusetts, the law says that attorney generals can bring suits for unfair business practices. And an unfair business practice is one that violates public policy. That's the legal connection. Just to amplify, you're asking a very good question. It's one that I don't know that people are going to have a def definitive answer to. But I think as I look at this, the attorneys general. There's a major public issue has been identified. It affects public health. It affects the quality of the debates that occur. If you're an attorney general, I mean, if you weren't, if it wasn't totally a partisan issue and you began to be concerned about the credibility of elections, you began to be concerned about the quality of uh, the performance of state officials, forget, forget the campaigns and trying to regulate that. You're simply saying that it appears that this Facebook vehicle is the major vehicle for creating misinformation, for, for uh, creating lack of credibility in the system, and in fact, producing results that, uh, that, that strike people as, as problematic. But, but the most important thing for me as an attorney general was that this is an issue that affects every consumer 
every citizen of the state. And my job is to be the consumer protector, not to be the Republican the consumer protector or the Democratic consumer protector, but the people and to make sure that there's fair competition, make sure people are telling the truth about their product, making sure that if somebody is failing to comply, they have a remedy for it in this kind of an area. And most importantly, when the Facebook itself, you know, this is, I think, one difference from tobacco. Nobody ever really stood up and said, tobacco is the greatest thing in the world and it's great for your health and everything else. I mean, that was not the issue. They just swore that it wasn't addictive and swore they weren't trying to, to cause death and disease by it. Here, you basically have a product that people said themselves, we have a problem. We are huge now. We do have to think about how what impact of our work is on racism, on hate, on the misinformation. They said it. It wasn't just the public. And said they said, we are working on that. We are going to try to change that. We're going to try to remedy that. And what the whistleblowing, what Thomas is pointing out about the whistleblower, it's showing it does not appear to be true, that they may have some people working at it, but the leadership level, they're not attempting to remedy a problem and, and figuring out that probably they won't be regulated. And therefore, I mean, that's the argument you're trying to create here. There needs to be some oversight because it's demonstrated now that the company itself admitting the problems that exist does not appear to be able to fix its own problems. And that's where the public interest issue comes into play when they admit the harms and they're not taking the steps or claim they're taking the steps and they're not to remedy that. That's where the attorney general role is particularly unique as a powerful vehicle or seeking a remedy. In October, 12 or 13, state attorney generals wrote Facebook asking for more information about their disinformation about vaccine mandates. And this is a source, as you know, of great discord in our society. On, I think, December 2nd, almost two months later, we learned because CNN called it to Facebook's attention that Facebook was making money off of ads comparing vaccine mandates to the Holocaust. That was against Facebook's policy. So Facebook then takes action. Scott's point is they don't take action until someone calls it to their attention. And the tobacco lawsuit was a major vehicle for calling them to account. Um, there's so much I could say. I just want to say that that precise uh, pattern, this is our policy, and then a news media brings to their attention the violation, and then they take it down. They, whether it's because they're not trying or because they are not trying very hard, they have the technology for sure, to stop these things that are violations. But I'm just saying this was a replay. At least three times we know CNN, BBC brought to their attention in 2019 human trafficking on their site. And they take things down after it's brought to their attention. When Apple, when the Apple store threatened to disable their app, in the Apple store, 
they multiplied their efforts rather than taking down a few hundred postings. They took down 100,000 pieces of content about human trafficking under that threat to their profitability. And that's exactly what is needed here for accountability. What I was kind of trying to piece together a little bit is whether the conditions are the same at the moment. Um, you know, and, and we are, we're seeing these stirrings from AGs. We're seeing uh, state houses and, and the federal government, the FTC. Uh, just yesterday, Maria Cantwell just sent another letter to the FTC asking uh, for them to investigate, uh, you know, potentially, uh, you know, fraudulent practices at, at, at Facebook. I'm just trying to kind of put together in my mind whether the conditions are the same as they were in the 90s and whether we can expect that type of of, uh, of action. Yeah. So it, it seems like it's a bit, you know, the science was there. You began to have evidence emerge from inside the companies in the, in the form of whistleblowers and, and other uh, mechanisms. And then this sort of generally the deceit uh, between the company's public statements and what they actually knew, what was actually the circumstance became so apparent that uh, the state AGs kind of had no no, uh, no way not to not to act. Is, is that basically it? One, I would let Tom reply to this, but one thing to remember, John Gardner said, reform is not for the short-winded. And we really began this effort. I mean, Tom points to 1994 and 95 was the first meeting, but earlier there had been some lawsuits about Joe Camel, 93A, it was an eight or nine year process. It escalated because the whistleblowers, because the attorneys general mobilized, because Tom and the team of attorneys general really started to put the heat on. And then the media started to pay attention so that you really were getting a lot of, so that escalated the effort. But there were many, many medical people who've been working at this for years, uh, trying to produce uh, the information. So I think it, it is a longer, it is a longer process that's going to test it. But I think what it tends to do is to make the case that there must be some level of accountability. And one of the problems that we didn't have then was there was still some degree of credibility that government had, that people didn't think regulation was the worst of all enemies uh, at this point. And corporate America did not object to the regulation. Uh, that was never the issue. Today, it may, you know, you sort of may have a different political environment. But just back to the original core was it was, you know, a decade long effort by many, many people before the attorneys general stepped in. But when the attorneys general stepped in, it really helped mobilize everybody. It was like suddenly you were bringing a gun to a knife fight in, the, in this area, as opposed to having only private plaintiffs actions, class actions and that kind of thing. The attorneys general being mobilized and then with excellent legal work that made it possible really energized the rest of the community. Plus, you cannot underestimate how much those disclosures began to mean when the documents came out. They were, it was like, do you believe me or your lying eyes? I mean, it was really an opportunity that was seized. And I think that's what both Dennis taught. We've been thinking, this may well be the time. It is very true. Facebook could reset Meta now could avoid this whole problem just by stepping up themselves and defining reasonable efforts to have transparency and accountability. That would probably, that would be hard to overcome. But that's my view about it is that that's why this is the beginning. If the media stays on this, if people keep at this, and if the harms continue, if the harms appear, that's the key. I mean, are the harms going to continue 
and grow and multiply. Let me add one condition that I think is better than in the 90s. Polls show that three quarters of the American public believe Facebook causes more harm than good. I don't think that was the same situation, Tom, you can you may remember, uh, with respect to tobacco. No, and you're right, Dennis. I mean, the cases at the time, and just to put the context, Justin, um, before the attorney general's litigations, right. the industry had litigated every case, hadn't settled a case, hadn't paid a dime, continued to propagate the, the three lies, uh, and it had a litigation budget, even at that time, that uh, my memory is, was in the $500 million a year range. Um, uh, you know, and, and so while the cases were working very closely, uh, and all the states were, uh, particularly when we got into negotiations as well, with the public health community, with the organizations um, like the American Cancer Society, as Scott mentioned, um, it wasn't like the cases had winded their back from the general public. It was viewed as an anti-business litigation um, because the most profitable item in every convenience store, in every gas station, uh, is the cigarette. And was the cigarette then and still is today. So you see some real corporate leadership, you know, more recently um, with CVS not even selling it. Um, you know, very large companies taking very profitable things out of their stores. That's 20 years later, obviously, but at the time we had to overcome the lack of any prior settlement or um, victory that hadn't been tipped on appeal against the industry for decades. We had two advantages, I think the whistleblowers, and then we did have a small company called Liggett that had been a large participant in the industry, about 18% back in the 50s, had fallen to 2% market share, was bought by uh, Bennett LeBeau, who's more of a corporate raider, not a tobacco guy. Um, and he was advised by his lawyers that, you know, you got some smoking guns in here in these documents. We've looked through new lawyers. Uh, and we did our first settlement with, much like you go up the food chain and a drug cartel, you know, we did our first settlement with a small company that once it was cut off by the other companies in terms of funding their litigation expense, um, really couldn't afford uh, to uh, not settle. And they ended up in 96, I believe it was, um, admitting to the three lies that they were lies uh, and handing us in 96 and 97, you know, a pile of documents that we uh, flew into courthouses overnight uh, before they could be uh, enjoined from mm -hmm. going to the courthouses uh, by the companies. First time I want to say how much I enjoyed the metaphor smoking gun. <laughs> I think one of the AGs called it a smoking howitzer, as I recall, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, I hope it had a filter, though. But the point that Scott and Tom have both made about private lawsuits paving the way, the long process, another parallel. You mentioned, Justin, the FTC. In 2019, the FTC settled with Facebook for five billion dollars related to their Facebook's many, many privacy invasion mishaps. And then in 2021, we have a settlement with private litigants for a mere $650 million against Facebook for its face tagging uh, without the consent of users. And face tagging is 
okay, the, the, the uh, artificial intelligence recognizes your face and suggests that you tag that person. The roadway is being paved both by private litigants and now by attorney generals and by the FTC. So it seems like the conditions might exist for this type of activity. Uh, it seems like general estimation as a group is that we're, we're probably early in this process um, if, it, if it in fact unfolds. Um, you mentioned at the start the uh, continued payment settlements um, that go on from the industry. You know, it'd be good for, I think, the listener to understand that. You know, essentially, the, the industry was asked to pay for uh, the harms that it had produced. Is that right? Um, and yeah. do, you, do you think that it was asked to pay enough and that that's had an impact? I mean, clearly, the tobacco companies still exist. They're still profitable. The, people are still dying of, of lung cancer and emphysema. Well, I mean, Tom can speak to it, but let me just say two things. One is the we never thought that we our goal was not to get two hundred million dollars consistently. Our goal was to stop, was to regulate tobacco and nicotine, and and that did not occur. The FDA thing did not occur till much more recently. Congress did not act because of political, in my opinion, political pressure, and frankly, very much of the money that we are getting to the states for various reasons, state legislatures had moved it into other places other than just public health. And that the hope had been that there would be federal regulation that would, would deal with this much like Highway Safety Bureau. So the settlement itself was important symbolically, and it does generate resources. But I guess my message here is your goal here is to get reasonable regulatory oversight of a major industry that in many respects may even be the key major industry in terms of political, social, cultural, and even economic flavor of the country, get oversight so that they can be held accountable in some way. And that was really the goal. Yeah. What the settlement did was get the industry earlier. I mean, Tom can speak to this, but my view still is the scariest thing that happened to me politically was when the settlement came in with this massive settlement, their stock went up because all they wanted to do was get certainty. Let us figure out how to run our businesses. And they have figured out how to continue to do that. It was not prohibited. It did not become prohibition and that kind of thing. They switched names. That's the other thing to remember. Philip Morris, it's Atria now. I mean, somebody, Altria. Spent, a yeah, Altria. somebody spent a fortune on the name change just as Facebook must have figured out, wait a minute, we better try to figure a somewhat different label. So my point to people is, again, the John Gardner line, reform's not for the short-winded. It doesn't happen overnight, particularly with major, major industries. But what you are seeking, I hope we're seeking, is a, a capacity to have begin to have some level of regulation oversight, but also maybe a little bit of people coming to Jesus themselves as companies saying, let's reform ourselves. We we can probably do a better job of figuring out how to do this well than anybody else. And that's going to be our defense to regulation. We will take care of the problem. In my view, that's what tobacco in part made a judgment about. We'd rather have a settlement figure this out than some oversight agency. Let us control some of the terms. We'll agree with the attorneys general and move on. That's how I see this as sort of the big, it's maybe not just the beginning, but that's the process you're looking at here. Just um, to go back to tobacco, um, to the point yeah. Scott's making, I think the way we would phrase it back then was 
The real goal, well, it's been great to get for the states over $200 billion and then more to come. The real goal was harm reduction. And as Scott and Dennis note in their piece, the, um, there's a very long-term study called the University of Michigan Monitoring the Future Study that has measured at-risk youth behaviors for decades. And the, according to their study, um, the number of youth using cigarettes at the time of the settlement was nearly 20%. I believe the number was 18 or 19, and it's now two. And that's the real harm reduction here. It's very hard to get addicted smokers who are already adults and addicted to stop smoking. Um, some do. And to Scott's point, if, if people's behavior uh, inside these companies and what are very powerful apps change so that they can reduce harm, that's the win here. And uh, it's Dennis, I will just add that in San Francisco's case, we won half a billion dollars and much of that money went to rebuild San Francisco's indigent care home for senior citizens, many of whom were victims of lifelong smoking, emphysema, and lung disease. So the, the money was used for social improvement related to the harm that was caused. You know, one, one topic, Justin, you didn't ask about was sort of the preemption liability protection topic. And just to give you the tobacco part of that, and, and maybe Dennis can speak to Section 230 after that. But in tobacco, one of the tools tobacco, the tobacco industry had been using to preempt claims, both private claims and government claims against them, was something called the Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act, or FICLA, which is the law that establishes the warning labels on cigarette packs. And it contained a provision uh, purporting to preempt uh, any other state or local you know, action based on uh, smoking and health. Uh, and, and obviously, the, the core point was they didn't want to have to do 50 different warning labels uh, on a national product. And that, that would have been you know, a very valid point and a very good one. But it was initially used very broadly by the industry to try to get cases dismissed, both by private parties and ultimately by you know, government parties as well. When in fact, you know, in the end, it obviously preempts certain types of things, but it is not a license to commit consumer fraud or common law fraud or other unfair and deceptive acts and practices. So um, I know the industry has a liability protection in section 230. Uh, Dennis can speak to the scope. It may or may not be as broad as has been asserted. Yeah, 230 has been interpreted very generously to the industry as immunization. My thinking about that is that 230 was adopted at the early stages of the internet to protect these companies as they develop. They are now mature companies. There's a fair amount of bipartisan distaste in Congress for Facebook, but as Scott has said, Congress is also quite paralyzed by its donors and Facebook is an enormous donor. I think there was a study showing that they spent more than almost every other lobbying industry in the last quarter on Congress. So, uh, you know, the, the hope there may be tempered. I do think the courts may look at it over time 
a little differently. And I also think that with the right framing of a lawsuit under uh, statutes, state statutes like California's Section 17200, unfair business practices, I mentioned earlier, Massachusetts has a very similar one. In those, in those, under those statutes, what states are entitled to is restitution for the harm caused. And uh, I, I think that there, there, it's a promising route, but it is uncertain as long as 230 exists. I want to just add the one thing, the two lawyers here who will correct me or, or think about this. One of the arguments to make, we've talked about political, the political polarization, which is really concerns me as a, as a profession. I think that's our whole focus is how do you deal with that? But think about it this way. If public health is usually a state function, state overseas, and we're going through COVID, we're going through that. When, when Facebook becomes a vehicle for anti-vaccination, for anti-COVID treatment, for evidence that will emerge more and more that many of these things could have been prevented, might have been prevented uh, over time, it is arguable that that will become, states will then, as they have under COVID emergency powers now, be able to uh, engage in much more direct oversight as to whether they were telling the truth about their products or allowing things that were causing public harm and public health harm, to, which is more tangible perhaps than whether democracy is being threatened. It's really about sort of public health. And I think that, that um, a state like Massachusetts, for example, that was the basis on which in 1998, we were able to regulate handguns because it was not, of course it wasn't then a second amendment issue, but, but the other side was, the state had the power to deal with public safety and public health. And that's what we were doing. That's we claimed that we're just, you know, say we're making safe, making it safe rather than eliminating it. That kind of a route here uh, on other topics may well do that. That's what I see coming uh, in terms of the states being able to step in here in addition to this, but the federal government, I think is, the reason the state AGs count here, you know, you'd love to see the Department of Justice. They didn't even jump in in the tobacco suit till after it was basically over. And that's not a criticism of the individuals involved. They just didn't politically. The state's attorneys general, you know, if they act like attorneys general, not political folks who happen to get elected to a law office, if I can use that term, or are lawyers who want to do a professional job here may well be able to craft solutions that you'll not get from a larger federal con congressional uh, office. That's not a Republican or Democrat either, because the Congress under Democrats wouldn't pass the federal regulation that goes with this. So the Facebook being the law, it's the states that may well be the arm, uh, which have often initiated many of the major consumer actions. And that has usually not been a partisan or it hasn't been overly successful if it's been a partisan issue. Let me put it that way. It's not been particularly successful to have just Democratic attorneys general or just Republican attorneys general bringing some of these. It's when they combine and coordinate as state attorneys general that you begin to get the clout politically as well as legally uh, in the courts and in the public eye. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much for talking to me about this. And uh, as these, uh, you know, AG cases unfold, uh, I'll hope to come back to you. 
We hope they do unfold, Justin. Or we'll come back and rail at them. We'll come back to you and say, let's do a piece saying, why aren't they doing it? But anyway, that's uh, no look. Thank you. And thank you, Tom and Dennis, uh, for your work on this as well. And thank you for including us. I appreciate it. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.